It's a new year, which means we have a ton of experts making predictions for 2024, from the sensical to the preposterous. So how can we make sense of what happens next? That's why my guest this week is Chris Rodriguez. Chris is a 20-year marketing veteran with a passion for driving growth and tangible results for brands and entrepreneurs. He has worked with over 30 startups across all tiers of funding, so seed round all the way to Series E, and sizes of 10 to 100 plus companies, generating brand awareness, web traffic, signups, downloads, all those good things, and mostly importantly, customers and revenue. He now runs the agency IXL.co, a B2B SaaS-focused demand generation and marketing operations agency based out of the greater Washington, D.C. area. I cannot wait for this conversation. But first, welcome to this week's episode of Make Sense, a video podcast that simplifies complex topics at the intersection of tech and people. There are many. So whether you're hyped on artificial intelligence and ready for the robot takeover, we're talking about that today, or you want to crawl into a cave after deleting all of your social media accounts, I don't blame you. I'm here with my guests to help make sense of what's going on so you can design yourself and the human experience into the future. My name is Lindsay Tabus, the lady engineer. I'm a pragmatic futurist and human-first technologist, serial entrepreneur, and innovation consultant. So if you are new here, subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's kick off year two of Make Sense by pretending that we can predict the future with Chris hmm. Rodriguez. Hi, Chris. Hello, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. So happy to have you. Awesome. How is the first month of 2024 treating you? Uh, the first month has been, uh, as I would call it, first world problems. So uh, business is growing um, and, you know, there are good and bad things that are new to me. So just very grateful to push through on this entrepreneurial path. That's awesome. I'm very excited for you. There's always growing pains, but as long as everything's upwardly trending, that's awesome. Exactly All right. right. Now, listeners, Chris has always been an informal informal marketing mentor to me. Uh, for the first 10 years of my career, I worked on product and engineering teams, and I knew nothing about marketing. And to be honest, I was dismissive of how hard it can really be. Marketing is just one of those things a lot of people think they can do themselves, but they are poorly mistaken. Mm -hmm. So lucky for me, my first year as an entrepreneur, I worked alongside Chris as an entrepreneur in residence for Techstars EdTech program in New York City, and he schooled me. <laughs> <laughs> Within a few months, I had been running an e-commerce store for over a year, and in a few months of hanging out with Chris, I realized e-commerce was all digital marketing and I knew nothing about digital marketing. I didn't think e-commerce was that fun either. So <laughs> he actually helped me say goodbye to that business in a way. Mm -hmm. But after spending the past 10 years as a consultant and founder of Labs, while also growing this podcast amongst a bunch of other things, I have a profound respect for marketing. Um, I'm grateful to have been but a blip on your process and your path. And uh, this will be fun. Yeah, this will be fun. I do want to ask you, Chris, why digital marketing? Like what makes you love it? And also what makes you and what do you think about your personality makes you so good at it? Well, I can say that the reason why I got into digital marketing was specifically because first and foremost, I was intrigued by and passionate about marketing the products that I was involved in. My career started in the music and entertainment industry, and I realized 
after some time that I was very passionate about the promotion of the musician, almost with respect more so than the music itself. Hmm. And that isn't something common in the entertainment space. Right. So I realized I needed to follow those instincts. So that's what got me into marketing in the first place. What got me into digital marketing specifically was um, I have been involved in many conversations with either fellow marketers or others in larger other functions that require marketing in the room. Mm -hmm. And I quickly learned much of this is qualitative and opinion based. And as a logical thinker, I'm not so much concerned about being right or wrong. I just want the right answer to be heated or seen seen through. And so I often found that math was the great equalizer. So once I decided to follow the path of math, then I could be right or wrong, but it didn't really matter because the math was true. And that's what really got me passionate about digital marketing. And I started to get into analytics, uh, SEO rankability, uh, the ability to follow things like click-through rates, conversion rates, and make recommendations either in line with my instincts or sometimes be proven wrong by the math. But it was such a relief to have math even as I'm, quote, wrong, because what really matters the whole time is the math. So that was just almost like a comfort blanket. And it has uh, helped me throughout my career uh, earn trust and continue to be transparent about my recommendations. That's awesome. I, I like that. You know, I think one of the things that always deterred me or or it causes pain in the relationship with marketing is like in absence of numbers, it does feel like a guessing game. And it becomes sort of a bit of a, Uh, posturing if you're in the wrong room where someone's historical credentials can outweigh the topic at hand, which I would say the right cultures and the best cultures have data-driven ideas, no matter your seniority. Um, And if they are uh, proven right based on the math, then they should be the right answer that one uses. Yeah. You know, one of the things I liked uh, about your origin story is that Uh, You said you were in music and that you became very excited about the promotion almost as much as, if not more so, than the actual music. And that's rare. And so between the lines, you're saying that most people are obsessed with the music and not as obsessed with getting the music out there or obsessed with the techniques to get the music out there. Yeah, I think... I think part of it is, to be clear, I'm still very passionate about music. Of course, of course. It's something that if money were no object, I would probably still very much be in the music and entertainment industry. But I, I, I started to learn the power of words, images, hand to hand promotions, just outright hustle, um, physically being in certain locations, understanding influencers, uh, key stakeholders that are parts of buyer processes Mm -hmm. and you don't necessarily think of it that way as you're going through the process, but hindsight being 2020, you start to realize this is a craft in and of itself. This is, this just happens to be a product that I am selling. Mm -hmm. And so now I realize, and I say sometimes a little tongue in cheek, 
I can sell a pen, I can sell a phone, I can sell a mouse pad, I can sell this laptop that I'm speaking to you through. Mm -hmm. There is a target market somewhere. There are the right words to use, right images to use. And I'm just passionate about that discoverability and understanding that things can be tested. Experience does give you informed guesses, mm -hmm. but things can be tested. And I've been right as much as I've been wrong. And as long as you don't lead with your ego, you firmly are believing in the process. Yeah. So uh, the reason I brought up the music thing and 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 is because it mirrors in the startup world that, you know, founders, if we were to equate them to musicians, are more obsessed with their product than yes. they are with like their customer or the audience or the problem they're even trying to solve. They're obsessed with the product. And and so I, I, I glommed onto that thing that you said and brought it back up because it's very much human nature to be more excited about the thing you've created and believe that if I create it, they will come. And that can, we can see that in the startup world as much as we see it in, in music and entertainment. That is certainly the trend. But what I would say is the most impressive founders to me have really wanted to go through the process to get to the end result. And sometimes the end result has curves and turns mm -hmm. that weren't necessarily a part of your initial vision. Right. But if you actually walk through that process fully expecting those very turns and you're not so much leaning towards stubbornness, but there is a perseverance, there's sort of a fine line between stubbornness and perseverance. And I've found that the best founders are let's say the cliche is strong opinions, weakly held. Yeah. Conviction is, is good, but if there's some learning, it doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong. It means that the math determined that there was a different path. And if you're wise, you'll actually follow that path. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Again, I... Some of the most impressive founders that I've come across in my path. Right. The, the ones that are uh, more likely to succeed understand there needs to be a certain level of confidence to drop everything and pursue entrepreneurship, but also a certain level of humility that they don't exactly. know everything. And I right? will say I try my best to lead my company with that mentality. It's good to be forward thinking, but it, you also need to understand that you cannot predict the, the you can't predict the market you can't predict things like i'll just give an example you can't predict war coming which therefore can affect the market a, a very wise three times exited founder uh, gave me some of that advice you never know what will happen and it is beyond just what you're thinking and your process and and what you see with your own eyes mm -hmm. you just need to uh be willing to pivot and yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I love that. So with the mention of predictions, let's get started with our first segment. Each episode of Make Sense starts with 
crystal ball, what does the future hold? This is where I call out interesting predictions other people made for 2024 and the experts, my guests, they tell us their hot take. So I want you to say yay or nay. If you don't know anything about it, say whether you want it to happen or don't want it to happen. If you right. know something about it, I want you to say, yes, that's happening or no, that's not happening. And maybe give us a little background or context. Okay. okay, let's give it a go. All right. So we're doing two versions of this segment, starting with marketing predictions. Uh, I'm not losing a chance to learn from you and, and neither should my listeners. So um, I thought these were interesting. These were made by another uh, marketer. So um, first prediction is that there is going to be a bigger focus on personality. So, so many markers, marketers dove into using AI to create content that it's starting to sound like the same person everywhere. Uh, customers want personality. Yay, nay, is that a trend? I would say yay to that. And mm -hmm. the reason why I say that is you have to cut through the noise in anything that you do. Mm -hmm. And so what you're referring to now is the idea of, frankly, what we're replicating right now live on this podcast, which is people talking, creating video footage, creating audio content. And how does one cut through the noise? By being, let's say, loud, polarizing, funny, um, controversial. And as long as you as a persona are willing to do that, um, you'll definitely differentiate. And that is something that sounds like common sense as we talk about it, but it only gets noisier and you're really going to have to have a stance in order to have people accept or reject your stance. Yeah. That's yep. really, right. that's really the name of the game. And so it's as you, as you, Lindsay have started to build your podcast and, and show, um, you are obviously, uh, exemplary of that same stance, right? So, um, people need to make sure that they have a point of view and a perspective and that people can walk away from the content, knowing clearly whether they agree or disagree is a separate point, but knowing clearly what you represent and what to expect when they consume your content. I remember learning and branding that. You, some, if you want people to love you, some people are going to hate you, right? You have to be polarizing enough that people, that there are people that hate you because otherwise your personality doesn't stick out. My, my question is, given, you know, the rush to use, you know, ChatGPT and other generative AI tools, is it really obvious to massive mass consumers that personality is lacking in a lot of what they read? Do you, do you think it's obvious to them? Well, I think there's different ways that AI is being used. So if what you're referencing is the content creation side of AI, mm -hmm. words from chat GPT can read very dry. So it's already obvious as much. Um, images built through mid-journey um, can sometimes be quite riveting. Mm -hmm. And so AI or not, that may serve the purpose that you needed in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, there's now such a thing as AI influencers, automated fake humans behind a screen that are moving in certain ways and have certain visuals. And sometimes 
these AI influencers are making tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it's literally just an AI bot behind a screen that's been prompted to say certain words and move in certain ways. Interesting. I will say I have a particular um, uh, digital marketer uh, friend who is actually well versed at this, and his quote side hustle is creating AI influencers and generating revenue for himself and for brands. So there's clearly a desire for seeing certain types of content independent of whether it's AI or not. Hmm. All right. So yes, a bigger focus on personality. I don't know if this is necessarily like a new prediction. I think it's like a old wives rule if you if you want to stand out and build an audience. Uh, so and I might want to talk to that that guy sometime and have him on his <laughs> end. So we'll talk about that afterwards. Will All do. right. So this one, I am interested in your opinion. Uh, rise in long form content consumption. I thought everyone, everyone has ADHD now. So is there a demand for more comprehensive answers and libraries of valuable resources? Will people I would say be yes reading long for form? Two reasons. Okay. Yes, the for first, two reasons. The first one is specifically as SEO best practices, and you can easily Google specific word counts, but in general, the longer form yet still authoritative and comprehensive, the better from Google's bots perspective. And the reason is, again, Google's version of cutting through noise. So if there are 75 articles that all are referencing the same topic and Google determines that article 32 is the most comprehensive, has almost sections as if it were an encyclopedia like, call it ultimate guide to insert topic here, then the likelihood is that Google will deem that particular piece of content more authoritative than the others that are uh, lesser form. So mm -hmm. that's uh, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is probably more qualitative, which is to say, if I'm looking up something, if you're looking up something, Lindsay, I have a problem that needs to be solved. Am I going to look at some quick word stuffy blog post that slightly alludes to the solution or something that is quite comprehensive with sections, screenshots, perhaps a walkthrough? Um, comments from experts, that is probably the one that's going to catch my eye as I look at five or six or seven articles on the first page and open all the tabs and quickly glance. Mm -hmm. them. So longer form authoritative content for two reasons is most likely going to be the best solution. Okay. One, it's when it's higher quality, comprehensive and longer, it's going to be prioritized um, by, you know, search engines and, and two, you're meeting your audience where they are. If they are searching, they are looking for an answer. Um, if you, if it's a quick answer, Google already gives it to you in the first <laughs> result. And exactly. if it's a longer answer, Google's going to want to support something more comprehensive, which is what you want too, because you're looking, I know me, I'm looking for instructions and explanations and blah, exactly blah. right. Cool. Next one. Hyper personalization becomes the norm. So this is a continuation of the 2023 prediction, renewed focus on tracking technologies. Now, 
Last year, an ex- expert predictor said renewed focus on tracking. So I like the wording of this one because it ups the ante by saying hyper-personalization is going to become the norm. The norm. So are we are we there yet? And you think we're going to get hyper-personalization as the norm in 2024? Not only do I think yes, but that was actually one of the two predictions that I had written for uh, where, where I think trends are going. I'm glad to be aligned with these industry experts because that was also one of my predictions as well. So the bottom line is you really need to cut through the noise. That's the recurring theme, no matter the detail of tactic or channel. Mm-hmm. And in this case, as you can attest to, Lindsay, your inbox and my inbox are both flooded with spam outbound requests. Mm-hmm things that maybe are loosely directionally applicable to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see that you are in technology. So therefore, insert broad request here. So right? many people are trying to sell me recruiting services. Right now. Like right. I'm not recruiting anyone. So, so, so clearly they're not focusing on hyper-personalization. No. And the ways that you can focus on hyper-personalization are either information that you devolve, devolve uh, public, publicly divulge publicly or uh, information that I have in my database about you. And that can manifest in the form of custom emails or the idea of um, advertising to you in certain ways, knowing that the specificity of what it is that I'm advertising to you matters specifically to you mm-hmm. and maybe a, a small subset of people like you. Um, so those would be different ways to go hyper-personal um, in not too long from this moment here. So in the next four to six weeks, um, the entire cold email outreach ecosystem will be affected by more stringent rules by Google. And so therefore, uh, hyper-personalization has never been more important. So you're going to actually have to have something pretty riveting in your subject line that will get me to even open the email in the first place followed by specific context about me inside mm-hmm. the email body. And yeah. if that is not the process that you employ for your emails, you are going to hit the spam inbox quickly and get penalized at exponentially quicker rate than before. I'm really interested to see how this plays out. And thanks for bringing that up. It reminds me, you know, I got a, I use You Can Book Me for calendaring and I got a update from them that if I, I am using an at gmail.com address. They're no longer going to be able to send emails on my behalf, uh, which I thought was really interesting. And I assume it has to do with the same updates you're referring to. Now, outside of personalization in terms of like outreach and emails, um, this article I read had included, you know, I guess Nike by you to customize shoes. They've been, and L'Oreal has personalized cosmetic formulas. Um, I see that like, one, the idea that you can customize your Nike shoes has been around for a decade. I had a friend creating her own running shoes at least 10 years ago, if not like 15. Um, But I find that like most companies, if we're talking e-commerce, most companies just need to get better at product recommendations and their marketing campaigns, uh, you know, targeting the emails, like the emails they're sending from, you know, constant contact and MailChimp about promotions. Uh, 
let alone providing products and services that are totally personalized too. Is that, you know, when you're thinking about like the big companies, you think that there's still a lot of work to do um, on basic personalization? I think certain companies have it down and it's more that everyone will have to reach that same tier. Is there an example? Yeah, Yeah, I'll give you one example. So I'm a big sneaker head. And I often shop on the store StockX. Mm-hmm. And yep, StockX is an e-commerce site. So uh, it's a like, e-commerce, right? Is it? Well, yes, is it is an e-commerce site. That's correct. Yeah. But in terms of this example, um, you know, it is a store that I'm shopping on, and just like any e-commerce experience, I may abandon my cart. I may visit certain pages. And their retargeting ad sophistication is such where I'm actually followed, not just in general for retargeting about StockX, but I actually have a rotating display ad that is uh, demonstrating the three, four, five, or seven different sneakers that I viewed in my last session to therefore intrigue me to click in again and to get that sneaker. This is something that isn't so new, but it is sophisticated in its implementation. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to a state where everyone needs to uh, get to that level if you expect to cut through the noise. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So the next prediction is more chat automation and funnels. I think chat funnels. So automated DM conversations to capture email addresses. The author of this List mentioned specifically that automated DM conversations have maybe a 95% email capture rate. I don't know. I did not fact check that. What do you know about using Facebook Messenger or Instagram messages or any other kind of uh, chat automation tools? Sure. So I have a mixed uh, response to this one in part because I firmly believe that social media DM as a channel has historically been one of the strongest, if not the strongest channels. And yet it is very easy to see automated chat bots being no different than, and sometimes a worse experience than spam emails. In other words, if I'm showing up to a website and some web uh, master believes that their automated chat bot with their FAQ section is satisfying me as I'm asking questions. In fact, I've had a turned off experience from that and it feels negative versus something as simple as a LinkedIn friend request followed by, let's say, a well-written, high-level, normalized language enough type of automated response sent at scale could definitely get a very high response rate. Now, if you were to extrapolate that all the way to conversion of email, that's a little too abstract for me to say yay or nay um, in general because the details matter. But I do believe in the concept of DMs in social media channels. Now, that said, most social media channels have disallowed that ability to do that effectively. For example, Facebook uh, doesn't allow you to get into the main inbox. They have a secondary inbox. Um, 
you know, Instagram has a similar behavior. Uh, Twitter used to be a wild, wild west of constant automated DMs and people were just sort of so poor at the execution that the system disallowed them uh, in aggregate. But mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that if you do it correctly, that you still wouldn't get tremendous ROI from Twitter DMs, or I should say X DMs. Interesting. Um, but LinkedIn DMs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to do with that one. Yeah. Can uh, we have a bigger focus on personality with automation? Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, you're still looking for an acquisition as you're being personal, right? Yeah. So if I were to have some sort of a uh, YouTube subscription, and then once you subscribe to me, I somehow friend request you in an automated way on Instagram and then send you an automated Instagram DM, that's still social media automation. Um, but the copywriting is what matters. The, the type of flow and the type of experience is what matters. If you start asking me questions about how to buy my merch and sell my product, or if I ask you rather those questions, you're already going to be turned off and you're going to say, ah, this is some automated junk. Yeah. So the, the execution matters. There's like uh, chat interface is an interface in which you can apply user experience principles, right? Of uh, minimalist clarity, visibility of system status. These are all usability heuristics and chat is just an interface like any other that you can make a more usable interface. Exactly. And Cold email works well if done correctly. Social right. media DMs work well if done correctly. And quote correctly usually has to do with, to your point, Lindsay, the user's experience as I get these DMs, as I get these emails. How am I feeling? What is my emotion as I'm getting these emails? Does it feel real? Does it feel fake? Does it feel useful or does it feel useless? Right. Exactly. Right. So I love this one, and then we're going to move on to the next section. Okay. Uh, conversely, human as a premium. So 58% of U.S. consumers say that communicating with an actual human is what makes interactions with salespeople and customer service reps a positive experience. Do you think we will somehow be paying extra to talk to humans? I mean, I firmly believe that... Uh dealing with a human on a support line um, is a tremendously better experience than the opposite. I'll share uh, one example. So uh, IXL is a certified HubSpot partner, and I'm also a fanboy, for lack of a better term, of all things HubSpot. And you think about the level of scale that they have, and yet they have employed uh, their own version of certified HubSpot experts to be responsive and quite helpful on their chat. And so if I were to go into HubSpot's chat and I was just prompted with automated FAQ responses, I would be turned off and not be interested and feel negative about the experience versus as I've had many problems solved by a real human on the other side, how do I know it's a real human? because right. they're taking their time responding, they're investigating my problems, they're actually critically thinking about my HubSpot portal. Um, so it's obviously someone who is an expert who's caring about me in that moment. Yes. 
And as a result, I'm talking about them on a podcast right now and explaining that that user experience is tremendous. So yeah, high quality of service perception. Exactly. You know? And um, they've modeled that because that can't be cheap, right. right? To implement that systematically across the board. So um, that is- I just wonder, I'll give you an example. I worked, um, I worked for a major credit card company for eight months and a lot of their digital work is to encourage self-service and help reduce calls to their call center because a call to their call center averages $3.50. And when you add that up over their millions of card members, it's a lot of money, right? So could you imagine calling in and going through the automation and then it says, if you would like to talk to a human, it will cost $3. It will be added to your next credit card bill. Mm. Do you think that would fly with consumers? I think if they took the same goal but implemented it differently, the answer would surprisingly be yes. If they were to tell me for your bank account or for your credit card, there will now be a $6.99 a month subscription fee that gives you premium service. And if you're mm -hmm. interested, please click here there will be a likelihood of people who would actually say, yes, I might arguably be one of them. Mm -hmm. And the likelihood is that they would model that how many people would subscribe for these, but never actually make the call. Yeah. As a result, they would actually probably have some, some sort of subscription model to at least react to and tweak and alter to make it worthwhile. Cool. Spoken as if you, a, a real logical uh, marketing person. Yeah. Hey, it's worth testing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So for our second segment of Crystal Ball, what does the future hold? I want to do something uh, really fun. So in refreshing my list of predictions for 2024, I stumbled across a very precious article titled Elon Musk's Most Ridiculous Predictions and and it was an article posted on the next web in May of 2022. So for context, this article was published maybe just shy of a month after Musk purchased Twitter. So yeah. first, Chris, just it, like a TLDR, what are your general thoughts or feelings towards Elon Musk? Um, I, as someone who is an aspiring entrepreneur who's trying to succeed on this path. I definitely look up to anyone who has gone down this path, who has experienced those types of founder struggles. Um, that's really at the core of what I think about not just Elon Musk, but anyone who has gone down these paths that I'm aiming to go down. Mm -hmm. As it relates to the specifics about Elon Musk, he has opinions just like many people, and I might agree with some and disagree with others, but he's accomplished so much uh, in his life. And uh, it's difficult for me to lump any sort of, you know, political opinions or anything to that effect with what really matters in my mind, which is he's made significant, Im you know, impact and has a tremendous footprint on culture. So yeah. I'm probably leaning more so towards respect than any other emotion. Yeah. Okay, so more positive than me. Um, I'm not like out to like end him, but I do understand that he 
has had a huge impact, both positive and negative. He's probably an example of where personality, you need some people to love you, hate you in order for some people to love you. He's sure. polarizing, that's Definitely for sure. That. Yes. I think he had a pretty privileged background, so I don't know how much I relate to him as an entrepreneur. Fair enough. So, um, so now, before I pitch to you your thoughts on his predictions, I want to remind my listeners why this is important. So this isn't about just bashing Elon Musk. This podcast is about creating a foundation by which we can all design the human experience into the future. And part of driving towards that is understanding who is behind the technologies t today. Do we have the right people? Do we have enough diversity of thought? It's important because our technology's fundamental design flaws will mirror, mirror those of the humans that that designed it, right? Uh, someone I said, someone said on on LinkedIn, my LinkedIn post yesterday, uh, AI is as good as its last meal. Um, so I thought that was it. That was interesting. So. Um, Crystal Ball, did Elon Musk's seven most preposterous predictions from 2022 come true? Uh, so prediction one, actually, they're not from 2022, just the article is. So prediction one, Tesla will achieve full self-driving next year. So he actually first made the prediction in 2014. And by 2021, his own engineers were saying Elon's claim does not match engineering reality. So uh, what do you, one in general, what do you think of Teslas? Have you driven them? Have you rode in them? You think they're um, good cars? So I'm a little more old school um, in the sense that I like going to a gas station and, you know, filling up my tank with gas. So I can't say that I've uh, been too forward thinking on things related to electric cars and such. Mm-hmm. I will say that I saw some articles given the recent uh, icy snow and weather abound that uh, Tesla charges are taking two to two and a half hours. Um, and so, uh, you know, certain types of electric owners are, un un they were unexpectedly stranded and things of right. this nature. So this just feels like new and different to me. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. I would say, I think it's clear that if Teslas were and any electric cars were on complete self-driving, um, we would have a categorical shift in the way people commute and drive. And I don't think we're there yet. So I think that one's an easy answer, which is, you know, anytime I hear about self-driving, it usually sounds like a, a bit of an anecdote that someone tried as an experiment in the short term. And they try to say it to sound cool. So yeah. do you, you know. do you want self-driving cars? There's no way I would ever feel comfortable having going 60, 70, 80 miles per hour on the road and not having both hands on the steering wheel. So that 100%. would be a strong no for me. <laughs> Great. Okay. 100%. Yeah. So the reality is that, you know, he even adjusted in 2022 to say cars will arrive that self-driving cars will arrive within 12 months. So he's behind again. So basically next year has not come since 2014. Yeah, I will say just to that, I don't know why this is considered so important. Um, are we trying to create luxury in a car setting where someone sitting in the driver's seat can read a newspaper 
I don't, I don't understand the why here. Yeah. So I think one part is that I remember, um, you know, going on a date with a guy who travels one hour each way for his bowling league. And he would love to be able to do other things in his car instead of drive, um, instead of driving. Right. So there's like, yes, the luxury of reading a newspaper or doing something else on a long commute. I think also, you know, we've seen over the pandemic how important supply chain management is and, uh, that uh, we're, we have a trucking shortage, we have a bus driving shortage uh, for schools, you know? So uh, these types of like a long haul on any trucking line, if, if, uh, if that could be self-driving, that might actually create uh, some more efficiencies. Um, to so, each his or her own, yeah. That's yeah. Not, not, not really my thing. So prediction to uh, 2019 must predicted Tesla robo taxis on the road by 2020. He adjusted again in 2022 to say we see robo taxis without a steering wheel or pedals. And that will be begin volume prediction production in 2024. I, I think, there's, yeah, say. I think, I think there's, <laughs> there's more ecosystem needed in order to feel comfortable with robo taxis. I mean, obviously it's the same logic as the last point I made, but if there were like the equivalent of automated robo bike lanes, but for taxis, then obviously there's an ecosystem with automated driverless cars with certain lanes, then maybe I and others who might think like me would say, okay, so I can get into a robo, you know, yeah. robo taxi and feel comfortable. But again, um, especially in New York City or some busy uh, location. I mean, what if someone is crossing the street and yeah. it's, just, it's just way too many variables where I just don't understand the why here. Okay. I think also um, if, if we are as a society are going to invest in infrastructure, uh, you know, a robo taxi benefits one to three, depending on, you know, maybe four, uh, whereas building infrastructure for public transportation, right. uh, you know, uh, high speed rail, any of this would be. Uh, That's what I was thinking. So much well. more valuable to a larger amount of people. Um, I'm going to. Yeah. I'm going to skip prediction three because I think it was just, you know, uh, inciting stuff we don't need to go by it okay. uh, it was a he predicted that there would be no new covid cases by the in the u.s by the end of april 2020 and it's dumb and he was wrong, well, um, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> prediction four Neuralink will be in human skulls by 2020 so Neuralink is a startup developing chips that connect brains to computers so mm -hmm. their chip has not yet, as of 2022, been put into human brains, but have been put into uh, macaques, small monkeys' brains. Are you open to a future possibility in which a computer chip is put in your brain, Chris? Um, that seems a little too invasive for comfort. I will qualify that by saying... I definitely think if you can use technology to improve your body, your bodily functions, um, I'm definitely pro that and not anti that. Um, but surgery on the brain, 
feels particularly invasive. Um, you know, I would think there's probably better milestones to accomplish before things like that. For example, uh, prosthetic limbs that can possibly be intertwined into your muscles or nerves such that you can actually, you know, flex and close a fist or mm -hmm. things of that nature. That feels a lot more practical and frankly, um, useful for people who are in those circumstances. Now, I, I say that to say, if perhaps I or someone had brain damage and you're permanently altered and therefore a chip can possibly help solve something of that type, that's different than just, you know, to proactively try something experimental. I would say your, your, your current baseline of your body at that moment is probably what would determine my answer or my yeah. level of tolerance or interest in something like that. I have a lot of thoughts on this. And I think for my listeners, I'm going to have to do a whole episode on um, nanotechnologies and putting them into our body. Uh, Neuralink's first objective was to restore the mobility of paraplegics. So, okay. right. I now, by what you said, is if you had brain damage and this chip could restore you, and now thinking, do people have to put into their advanced directive, not just do not resuscitate, but if there's an opportunity to save me via computer chip, do not insert like, or, or that's okay. That's not okay. So that will, that will be interesting. I think the question that messes with my head is, do you trust these companies to fix bugs and release important updates in a timely manner? Right. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that is obviously me. always a concern with anything related to technology. But again, if you are blind and there's a way to implement a chip to allow me to see, or if I am deaf and you can actually trigger um, the right actions in my brain to allow me to hear, there's a, you know, a pro and con type of analysis that every individual person needs to decide what their comfort level is. But that at least feels a lot more logical than, you know, thing, other, other types of reasons. I'm just not into the concept of vanity or just trying to be superhuman. Mm -hmm. just it's cool. Or you want to be yeah. first. Um, none of that makes any sense to me. Right. Okay. So because we, I don't want to let this episode go on too long. There's three remaining predictions. One, I'm going to take off the table. And I already did when I wrote the script, which is there was another claim that Neuralink will solve autism. And it's a throwaway because autism isn't a disease. I think the author included this as like a reach <laughs> prediction to criticize Musk. Uh, mm -hmm. So the two remaining is between, and I'm going to let you choose, 1 million people will live on Mars by 2050, or Tesla's robot will be worth more than its car business. Which ones do you want to, which one do you want to talk about? Both by 2050? No. Okay. Just uh. Tesla's robot will be worth more than its car business. I will say in researching this one, a Norwegian startup called 1X just raised $100 million to bring their humanoid bot Neo. And OpenAI was part of a previous funding round for that. I think the likelihood that the robot technology and business 
uh, grows significantly so much so that it could be worth more than a car company is true. Um, on the inverse, I believe that the idea that in 26 years we're going to have a significant population of humans living on another planet is slim to none. I do not have science as much as others who might have information, you know, opinions on this. I just firmly believe in think about any project that has ever had a completion mm -hmm. in societal advances 20, 30 years. We have even we haven't even had one individual person live in a substantial way on Mars or a family outside of staying on a space station in a temporary basis mm -hmm. and be flown back. And we're yeah. still experimenting with animals. Um, there would need to be entire ecosystems built. And if you think about that, are we talking about a dome that has air pumping into it? Who's <laughs> yeah, going right. to build this dome? <laughs> Where are the materials coming from? Are people shipping bricks? Yeah. <laughs> over there and, and heavy duty metals and plastics. That sounds like 7,000 trips to even yeah. get the materials there in the first place. How long, I don't even know this answer. How long is the trip length from, uh, you know, from earth to Mars? Is it days, weeks, oh, months? I, I, it's okay. So interesting enough, this is not about the trip length. Um, it is about how often you can travel there. And knowing that Elon Musk is a businessman, the most optimal time, i.e. the shortest, the, when the two planets are at the shortest distance from each other, occurs every 26 months. So let's just say two years. So how do you feel about only having the option to come back to Earth every two years? Again, incentives work no matter what it is. So if someone were to tell, not me, but others that this made sense for, that you could live for free for two years with some unique experience, all food paid for, all costs paid for, then I'm sure there would be a subset of the population that would say, screw it, let's try. Um, but and those aren't the so, terms that Musk is offering. So. Yeah, exactly. I would just—it's probably <laughs> the exact opposite, which is to say, you have to pay in Uber. He, he, he actually is offering um, a loan that you can pay off by working on Mars, which is kind of like in, indentured servitude, to be honest. I, like, <laughs> if you want to go there, you have to have this job and pay it off and build the place. So and how about this? What if you miss the flight every 26 <laughs> Yeah, like what happens if you miss the flight? You have to wait two more years. To, yeah, it's, so it's, it's the very reality. Logical. Yeah, the reality is a lot of people probably have to die because you did 100,000 trips to transport 1 million people and their cargo. Exactly. So yeah. if that's where society is going, then interesting, I suppose. I mean, if we're really entertaining this idea, isn't the moon closer? Shouldn't we start there? Well, a prediction that, you know... Be, that was a hit last year was the commercialization of the moon in earnest. Well, and, I mean, that seems a lot more feasible 
Uh, a lot of the same reasons would be why that's not logical. But nonetheless, if you're comparing apples to apples, I yeah. mean, we need to see a compound of some sort on the moon before I start thinking that there's anything relevant to Mars. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. I say the reality is predictions are funny, I think, because no one actually has the privilege of knowing what happens in the next minute, which is what you said as far as in the beginning about the best CEOs have a lot of mental flexibility around their plans because they understand that war or global pandemic or economic crashes can happen and everything, the terms of the game, everything changes. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. All right. So let's make it make sense. I mean, how can we narrow this down to one takeaway is I, I go back to the beginning of our conversation about personality and value are still going to be the things that differentiate you even if you're getting into you know automation and other scalable kind of solutions and experiences you can't lose the you can't lose the humanity so human yeah, is think, a premium right i think i think it's important to be yourself be comfortable in your own skin, marketing and business or not. Mm -hmm. And your natural interactions should give that off and exude that. That creates authenticity, trust, the law of attraction, all of the above. And if you operate your life and business in this natural state, then whatever shall come to you shall come to you organically and naturally. And things that weren't meant for you will find there will fall by the wayside. And if you're comfortable with that process and you have patience, then what what comes to you was meant to be. And that's how I've operated my business, my life. I try to be very comfortable in my own skin. I try to lead my company with that mentality, um, both business decisions as well as a leader of people. And uh, that has served me well. So um, I would also say, though it's important to have um, an EQ, an emotional quotient, uh, you know, to be personable, to be sensitive, to be uh, empathetic. Um, at the end of the day, when it comes to decisions and decision making, logic over emotion 10 out of 10 times is what has gotten me here. And I hope the same for you, Lindsay, and all of you listening to this podcast. 100%. This is why I love talking to you. And I'm so glad you can kick off year two of Make Sense with me. So uh, thank you for listening to Make Sense with me, your host, Lindsay Tabas, and my guest, Chris Rodriguez. We hope you enjoyed our take on 2024 predictions for this year. Chris, where can people find you online? So my website is ixcel.co, I-E-X-C-E-L.co. Again, we are a digital marketing agency uh, based out of the D.C., Virginia area, but have business far and wide, uh, New York City, Miami, Los Angeles, Chicago. Um, and I am also pretty prominent on LinkedIn, 
My username is Chris XL, C H R I S E X C E L. <laughs> so reach out on me yeah. and uh, always happy to chat. Yeah, as always, you can check out all the links and resources in the show notes. And final note. If you want to continue to be the smartest person in the room, make sure you're getting notified when each episode of Make Sense hits on YouTube. Hit that subscribe for next week's episodes and for audio only, follow wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Chris, for joining me. Thank you, Lindsay, for having me. Appreciate you.